if you didn't catch at the beginning, I'm, I'm Ben Moser. I'm, I'm on staff here. Lucas is out of town this morning. Um, he's working on uh, a little writing retreat for his PhD, so we can be praying for him. Um, but as for us, this morning we are now going to enter our time in the service where we hear uh, from God's word. So would you please bow your head one more time with me as we pray to ask God to bless this time. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. Your name is great in all the earth. And you have loved us so much that you would send your own son to save us, to remove our sins, not in part, but in whole. And God, you preserved your word for us so that we can now open it up to know what you want from us, what you want for us, how we can be living and serving you. We ask, Father, that you would soften our hearts this morning to hear what it is you have for us from your word. God, we know your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and we just pray that you would use it this morning, God, to do its work in us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be continuing our series in 1 Samuel this morning. So if you want to start finding your way there, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I don't know about you guys, but I have really been enjoying our 1 Samuel series. I've always liked 1 Samuel, one of my favorite books, but I find that studying the Old Testament can be very, very rewarding for us because a lot of the times it's confusing. We read a chapter in the Old Testament and we're like, what's going on? It's not always easy to understand what's happening. But as we press into it, as we try to understand and as God illuminates his word to us, One of my favorite things I think we find in the Old Testament is that we see a very clear picture of the heart conditions that we all suffer from, that are common to all of humanity. When we look at Israel in 1 Samuel, and we see them continue to mess it up again, and we see them continue to do the wrong thing, and it looks like they're going to go right, then they go wrong, uh, we realize that, yeah, that's actually all of us. All of us have the same heart issues that the people of Israel have Uh, the people that all people have had since Adam fell in the garden, uh, we're all in the same boat. This specific passage this morning, 1 Samuel 8, is going to give us an insight into our hearts and into why we continue to do things that we know are wrong, we know go against uh, God's word, We, we blow past the warning signs, and we still end up messing it up. We still end up relying on our own strength, not following what God says, but trying our own strategies to figure it out. I mean, you can think about it. Why, why are there so many churches that have pastors that fall away, blow up, there's this huge scandal, they're abusive, they're this and that, and then they fall away? Why do we have so many churches that drift away from the clear teaching of Scripture to teach other things? Why do we have so many people in the world who compromise their morals? When push comes to shove, they don't stick with what God says, they give in and they give in to sin. Why do we do that? This passage is going to help us understand as we look at Israel uh, doing just that this morning. Why is it that we continue to try and rely on our own strength, do our own thing, instead of doing what God has clearly told us to do in his word? So again, if you have a Bible in front of you, try to have it out so you can see the text. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And if you remember from last week in chapter 7, things have just started to look up for Israel. Okay, They have been having a string of terrible leaders. They've been through this period of the judges where it's just been a steady decline of leadership. 
And then all of a sudden, God raises up Samuel, and there's this bright spot. Okay, now Israel has a good leader. It looks like they're on the up and up. It looks like in chapter 7, they do everything right, right? They finally realize that they need to cry out to God. They go to Samuel, like, Samuel, what can we do? What can we do? And so he tells them to repent. And then in chapter 7, they run into a problem. Uh, the Israelite, or sorry, the Philistines show up again. The Philistines are back. They're at their front door, ready to attack them again. And this time, they get it right. They cry out to God, and God saves them. Literally, Israel doesn't even have to do it. God just thunders from heaven. The Philistines scatter. That was in the text last week in chapter 7. And then last week it left us in, in seven fifteen through 17. It says, and then Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on this circuit, and it tells us that he continued to judge Israel. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 8 this morning. Now, a lot of time has passed. Samuel's just been judging Israel faithfully throughout his life, and now in chapter 8, verse 1, Samuel is old. So if you'll read with me, starting in verse 1 here, we're going to see what happens next with Samuel, with the people of Israel. And we're going to see what is the heart condition that's going to cause them to make these mistakes they're about to make. This is First Samuel 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. We'll stop there and just take a look at this situation Israel finds themselves in. Basically what Israel is going to do is they're going to reject God's plan for what should happen next, and they're just going to follow their own plan. Uh, So first, they do correctly identify a problem. Israel looks and they say, okay, Samuel's old. Samuel doesn't have much time left. He's been a good leader, but it's time for him to move on. He's going to die any day now. And we also have a problem because Samuel's sons are terrible. Like Eli's sons before them, they do not follow in God's ways. They don't follow in Samuel's footsteps. They are now going after gain. They're not uh, serving the Lord like Samuel does. And so Israel rightly is kind of like, hey, guys, we've got a problem here. We've got a problem. Samuel's dying. We need, we need new leadership. And so what do they do? They come up with their, their solution. They run to Samuel. They say, hey, Samuel, guess what? You're old. It's time. We've got to move on from you. Your son's terrible. Here's what we want you to do, Samuel. Make for us a king like the other nations. Now, in verse 6, you'll see Samuel is immediately troubled by this request. Verse 6, he is, this thing displeased Samuel. And literally, in the Hebrew, that says, this thing was evil in Samuel's sight. So he gets this request, and he's like, oh, no, this is not good. And I'm sure part of it was personal, right? Samuel led them well for many years, and now they're rejecting him. They're saying, we're done with you. We want a new leader. We're tired of you. We don't like your sons either. Let's have a new leader. So he, he might be partly hurt, you know, uh, selfishly, but he also understands this is not, there's something off with this request. Something's not right here. This is evil in his sight. So the first thing he does there in verse 6 is he goes and he prays to the Lord, 
And then God answers him and he explains, yeah, you're right, Samuel. This, this is an evil request. You're right to, to be troubled by it. And here's why. God's going to explain what the problem is. What is the problem with Israel's request? They asked to have a king like the other nations. Well, the biggest problem with their request is that Israel already has a king. Look in verse 7. They're rejecting me, God, from being king over them. So he's like, Samuel, don't worry. They're not rejecting you. They're ultimately actually rejecting me. I'm their king, and they're rejecting me from being king over them. Essentially, what this request boils down to is uh, they don't like how God is running things in Israel. God brought Israel out of Egypt And he set himself up as their king. He set them apart as a holy nation to be unlike any other nation. He gave them the law and he's been leading them through the wilderness into the promised land. And he's got the priests and he's got the judges and he's been the one in charge leading them. And now Israel is like, hey God, we actually don't really like the way you're doing it. We'd rather try this way. We look over here and we see the Philistines and they've got a king and it seems like we'd rather like to try that. I know you're the king God and you have a plan, but let, can we, let's just try this plan instead. We don't want to do it your way. Let's do it our way. And basically this is Israel saying, we don't really want to be your people, God. We'd rather just be like any other people. Remember, God set them apart to be a holy nation. And what God says is, verse 8, this is what they've been doing since Egypt. This is nothing new. Literally three days after they leave Egypt, They're out in the desert, and they're like, hey, God, why did you bring us out here to kill us? Just let us go back and be slaves. I mean, from day one, God set Israel apart to be his people, holy, different than everybody else, and from day one, they're like, ah, we'd actually rather be like everybody else. I don't know if we want to be the holy set-apart people of Israel. And so that's what Israel's request is here. They say, God, we're tired of the way you're running things. We want to come up with our own solution and run things our way. We've essentially regressed. Chapter 7 was this bright point where Israel got it right. Now we're all the way back to chapter 4 again. Remember chapter 7, they had a problem. The Philistines showed up, and then what did Israel do? They cried out to the Lord, and God saved them. Now they have a problem. They need a king. Uh, And then what do they do? They don't cry out to the Lord, and they try and do it on their own, like they did in chapter 4 with the ark. They had a problem. The Philistines were there. They go, what do we do? Here, let's just get the ark out there. That'll make God help us. So it's the same thing they were doing in chapter 4. They go back to not relying on God, not going to his plan, not doing what he would have them do. They're just going to try and fix it on their own with their own plan, and they they don't want to deal with the way God's doing things anymore. It can be easy for us to get frustrated with Israel or laugh at Israel and be like, come on, guys, didn't you remember chapter 7? Just the last chapter you guys had it figured out. One chapter later, you're back to what you were doing in the first place. Uh, And it's easy for us to do that until we realize that we're exactly like Israel. We are so quick to forget what God has done for us. We're so quick to forget what he has commanded us to do in his word. And we're so quick to run to things and try to fix things on our own, do things uh, in a worldly way, in our own way, that is not the way God has commanded us to do. Um, This this passage is talking about leadership in Israel. So I think one way it kind of comes across to our days, think about leadership in the church. You can imagine a church that has a leadership problem like Israel does. They need a pastor. They need somebody to get in there. And scripture gives clear commands for who a pastor should be, what he should be like. There's a list of all the qualifications to be a pastor. But you can imagine churches, you don't have to imagine it, there are churches that do this, who instead of looking to scripture, looking to God's way of doing things, submitting themselves to God's leadership on how to choose a new pastor, who they should choose, they look at the businesses next door and they go, hey, that business is doing good. They're, they're running it well over there. They've got, their profits are going really high. This guy's a really charismatic leader. He's really rallying the troops. We should get somebody like that. So instead of doing what God tells us to do, they, they go and they look and they use worldly means. They do other things. They try to solve it on their own. 
And then, uh, as we'll see later in the passage, they'll end up in a mess. How about, think about running a church. Think about how you actually run the church. You can imagine somebody getting up in the pulpit on Sunday, looking out and seeing empty seats. And then they go back and they see the offering come in that week and they go, "Uh uh-oh, we're going to run short. Now what do we do? And then instead of, this happens all the time, instead of going to God's word, following his plan, sticking with what he's prescribed, they go, maybe we should just change it a little bit. Maybe we should just try some stuff. Maybe if we talk about sin a little less, we can just uh, just talk about the good stuff and more people will come. You know, it looks like everybody around us is, has been putting up rainbow flags. What if we put up a rainbow flag? Then more people will come to our church. And they go away from God's way to try their own way to get people to get in, to come uh, join their church. You can imagine, it's not just corporate. Obviously, churches do stuff like this where they don't trust in God's word and do his plan. They try their own. But we do it too, individually. You can imagine, how about a person who moves to a new place and they're trying to find a church? Is that person going to stick to finding a church that Scripture describes, a church that stays faithful to God's word? Or are they going to go, well, this church over here has a lot of programs for my kids, and I'd like to just drop my kids off of that program. Or, hey, this church has a lot of my friends at it. There's a lot of small groups. Maybe we'll go to that. But if that church is not faithful to God's word, they're, they're deviating from God's plan to try their own thing, to figure it out in their own way. And I, go, I think it presses into our lives, too. You can imagine somebody who's looking for a spouse. They really, really want to get married. And they go, man, I'm having a hard time finding a a good Christian woman to marry. Maybe I'll just try it. Maybe I should just date a non-Christian. It's fine. I'll just try that. I'll I'll try it my own way for a while and see how that works. Or even in your own life, when push comes to shove, when the money's tight and somebody's asking you to compromise on something you know is right and know is wrong, do you compromise and do the wrong thing just so you can make sure you get that paycheck? Or do you stick with what is right and what God says in his word? That is the problem that Israel is dealing with here, and that's the problem that we have is that when we have a real issue, they're real problems. They need a leader. You have to put food on the table. It's real stuff. But how do you go about solving that problem? Do you stick with how Scripture tells us to, or do you go off on your own way and and try to do your own thing? That's what Israel has done here in this passage. They have a problem, but instead of seeking God, seeking his way of doing it, they just do their own thing. Which does beg the question a little bit of what is God's way of doing it? How should they have done this? Is, is ask, what is actually wrong with their request? Is it that a king at all is terrible? They should never have a king? Or is it the way they ask the request? Why they ask for it? I think what we uh, see in scripture is actually, it's not that a king is wrong. In and of itself, having a king is not a wrong thing to have. But it's because Israel is trying to reject God to have a king. That's the problem here. And in fact, if you were to pick up the Bible, read from the front cover and keep reading through and hit Samuel. And if you're paying attention closely, you'll realize that as we get to 1 Samuel 8, actually scripture has been kind of setting us up to have a king. Uh, I'll point out a few verses. You don't have to turn there. I just want to point out a few of them to you. In, In Genesis 49, verse 10, Jacob is blessing his sons. And he says to Judah, Hey Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So if you're reading Genesis, you're getting through, you get to the end of Genesis, you go, wait, what? There's going to be a king that comes from Judah. That's all the way back in Genesis. There's going to be a king that comes from Judah. So you're like, okay, one day we can look out for that, a king from Judah. You keep reading through the Old Testament. You, you get to Numbers 24. There's a donkey and a prophet and a king, and it's all kind of weird. And then the prophet is speaking what God told him to speak, Numbers 24, 17. And he says this, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. There it is again. That kingly scepter, there's going to be a king that comes out of Israel. So you're, th- you're reading through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you're like, okay, a couple times here, it's hinting 
that one day a king will come. Then you hit the book of Judges, and Scripture really bears down on this idea of kingship. So we already talked about it. The, the period of the Judges, all these Judges kind of get worse and worse and worse and worse as they go. And by the time you get to the end of the book, there's stuff happening in the book of Judges that you wouldn't even believe would happen anywhere. It's, it's just craziness at the end of Judges. And towards the end of the book, all of a sudden, there starts to be this refrain over and over and over again of, uh, this is the last verse in Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. So it repeats that four or five times as the book of Judges closes. And then what's the next thing you read? You read Ruth, and then boom, you're in 1 Samuel. So as, if you're reading co- cover to 1 Samuel, as you get here, you're going, hey, Israel needs a king, man. It's a mess. It's a mess. These judges are terrible. Uh, Samuel's good for a second, but Israel needs a king because they're just doing whatever's right in their own eyes. They need somebody to unify this thing and get them together. Even in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 2.10, in Hannah's prayer, Hannah prays, he will give strength to his king. So Samuel's own mom is like, hey, God, give us a king. Give strength to the king. He will give strength to the king. So when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and you hear Israel go, hey, give us a king, you're almost like, oh, are they going to figure it out? Are they doing it right now? Is this it? Have they figured it out? We do need a king. We're quickly disappointed, of course, when Samuel's like, nope, you you messed it up again. But just to note that the problem is not actually the king in and of itself. The problem is why they wanted a king, why they were putting in a king. They wanted a king because they didn't like how God was doing things. They wanted to do it their way. And interestingly, they had a way they were supposed to do it. God gave them direct instructions for how to have a king. God anticipated that this day would come. He knew one day Israel would want a king. He was planning to have a king one day, and he goes, okay, so when you have a king, here's the instructions. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, go ahead and turn back to Deuteronomy 17, because I think this passage will help us understand what's going on in 1 Samuel. In Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14, God tells them exactly how they were supposed to do it. They had instructions for how they were supposed to make a king, and this is what it is. I'll just read Uh, These few verses, Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. Let's just pause there. That's exactly what they say in 1 Samuel. God knew this would happen. He goes, they're going to want to set a king over them like the nations around them. Okay, then 15, what does God say? You may indeed set a king over you. It's not wrong. You, You can set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not uh, acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So basically, God says, hey, all right, when you want a king, you can have a king. But what, what God specifies here is he's actually not going to be like the other nations. Uh, because all these things that God says here the king's not supposed to do are like the main king things that kings do. If you looked at the king of the Philistines, he would be gathering up chariots and horses, gathering up wives, and gathering up money as much as he could. And so what God says is, hey, here's the rules for a king. First, verse 15, I'm choosing him. He's my king. Second, Uh, There's a bunch of things he's not going to do, and he's basically not going to be a king like the other nations. He's not supposed to store up military might for himself. He doesn't need a thousand horses. He's not supposed to get a bunch of wives for himself. He's not supposed to store up excessive silver and gold for himself. Why is he not supposed to do those things? Because he's supposed to rely on the Lord for those things. He doesn't need a giant army. He has the Lord. 
He doesn't need excessive wealth. He has the Lord to provide for Israel. So God says, okay, you can have a king, but he's not going to be like the other nations. He's not supposed to take extra stuff for himself. He's supposed to rely on me. And then the next few verses, what is the king supposed to do? So if he's not taking and doing all the things kings normally do, like raising up big armies and getting a bunch of money, what's he supposed to do? Verse 18, Deuteronomy 17, 18. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So what's the king supposed to do? Follow the law and lead the people to follow the law. Literally, the king had to, can you imagine, getting a notebook, sitting down and writing by hand the first five books of the Bible so you could have your own handwritten personal copy that you wrote. That's what the king was supposed to do. He gets into office, first thing he does, write the whole law by hand. Then the priests check it, and then what is he supposed to do? Read it every single day. Help lead the people in it. Lead the people to love and serve the Lord. Be the example of how to follow God and follow his law. That is the king Israel is supposed to have. So as we flip back to 1 Samuel 8, you can imagine a slightly different scenario where the people realize they're in trouble, realize their human leadership is failing them, and instead of trying to solve it on their own, they cry out to the Lord, God, help us. And then God installs his king. And God says, hey, okay, let's try a king. I've got a plan. He's going to be king like this. Not like the other nations, but a king who loves my law. But that's not why Israel wanted a king. They wanted a king to be done with God and to just do whatever they wanted to. Notice how uh, in this, as we think about the application again, it's not, what, the king itself is not wrong. So it's possible to do something that in and of itself is not wrong and still be doing it wrong and still be messing it up and doing it for the wrong reasons. You can imagine, again, the church who needs a pastor. It's not wrong to try and find a, a charismatic pastor. In and of itself, a guy who can speak really well, that's, that's fine. That's probably a good thing. But that's not the main thing you're looking for. You're looking for that person's character. So you can see how you can do something on your own that you think is right. It's not necessarily wrong. It's not an outright sin, but it is wrong because you're doing it for your own sake, for your own reasons, and not in the way God commanded you to do it. So if Israel had done this king thing, God's way, it would have gone well for them. Instead, now, now as we continue in the passage, uh, God is going to warn them the consequences. Now you've done it, basically. Now you've gotten yourself in. Just make sure what you're, what you're wanting to get yourself into. And so as we continue reading, we're going to see, just like Israel, uh, there are consequences when we strike out on our own, don't do what God says, and try and do it on our own. So let's uh, start reading again in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 8. Now then, this is God speaking to Samuel, now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implementations of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. 
He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys, and he'll put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. God warns Israel that when you reject his plan to try your own plan, when you reject the clear teaching of Deuteronomy 17 to try and get your own king in there, there's consequences. It leads to more problems. You have a problem now, you're going to have more problems if you do it your way. So basically what Samuel tells them, he's, he's warning them about what kings are like. Verse 9, God tells, says, show them the ways of the king that will reign over them. And then Samuel says it again in 11. These will be the ways of a king. Basically, that word ways there in Hebrew is, is similar to the word for justice. It's saying, hey, this is, it's the king's right to do it. This is the way kings act. This is what kings do. This is their, uh, their justice. And what do they do? What's the main thing that Samuel warns them about? Kings take. Kings take stuff. I don't know if you noticed that as I was reading through the passage, but that word take is just repeated over and over and over again. Look at all the things this king is going to take from the people of Israel. Verse 11, he's going to take their sons. 13, take their daughters. 14, he's going to take the best of their fields and vineyards. And then, verse 15, he's going to take a tenth of the grain that's left over after he already takes a tenth of the fields. Uh, He's going to take... uh, 16, your male servants. He's going to take your female servants. He's going to take the best of your young men. He's going to take your donkeys. They're going to go do his work, not yours anymore. And on top of that, he's still going to take a tenth of your flocks. Take, take, take. That is what this king will do. Basically, uh, God is saying, be careful what you wish for, guys. If you set up a monarchy, if you set up a king in Israel, for the rest of your days with that king, he's just going to be taking from you. And notice how unlike the king in Deuteronomy 17, this human king is. The king in Deuteronomy 17 was supposed to not take. He's not supposed to go take a bunch of horses and chariots like this guy's doing in verse 12 or 11 and 12 with the chariots and horsemen. He's not supposed to do that. The king in Deuteronomy 17 is not supposed to take more than he needs. He's supposed to rely on the Lord. Israel's king that they're trying to make for themselves is going to be a king who takes. And look at what the final consequence of this is. It's not just that they're going to have lots of problems and he's going to take all their stuff. In verse 17, they're actually going to end up being his slaves, essentially, because of all the taking that this king is going to do in Israel. They're going to be his slaves. Uh, God's basically saying, hey, Israel, remember, so you, you said you wanted a king like the other nations. Remember, you actually used to live in another nation. You remember that? And you remember what happened when you were underneath the leadership of the king of that other nation? You were slaves. It's just like God said back in verse 8. They want to go back to Egypt. It's like they're, they're going from being their own free people underneath God to say, oh, we'd rather be like slaves in Egypt again. When, when we were under a foreign king, we liked being slaves, so let's just do it again. Let's just put another foreign king over us here, and we'll just be right back where we were when we started. And then, in verse 17, Israel will, verse 18, Israel will cry out. Remember in chapter 7, they cried out because they had a problem because the Philistines were coming to attack them? Well, now... They're going to cry out because they set their own king over them. They go from crying out for God to save them from their enemies to crying out for God to save them from themselves, from their own king that they picked to set up over themselves. And notice how uh, God makes it very clear whose fault this is. (laughs) Look at verse 18. Look how many times he says you. In that day, you will cry out because of your king 
whom you have chosen for yourselves. This is not God's king who he chose for his glory. This is the people of Israel choosing their king for themselves. And what does God say? He says, go for it. And I'm not going to answer you when you cry out after he enslaves you. Notice how God actually answers their request. And in answering their request for a king, uh, that is the judgment on Israel. They, they suffer the consequences of their own uh, requests that they asked of God. God does this sometimes. We should be thankful sometimes when God doesn't answer our dumb requests that would hurt us. But think about Romans 1, right? Romans 1, they reject God, they reject him. And God says, fine. He turns them over to their lusts, their desires. And that is the penalty. They receive the penalty in themselves. God turns us over sometimes to our dumb things as a judgment. And that's what he does here uh, for Israel. It's not that hard to think about the consequences when we look around or look at our own lives and remember the times when we tried to do things our way. We ignored what Scripture said about stuff and we just tried to do it our own way. Look at the churches who have abusive pastors and pastor scandals because they didn't uh, do things God's way in the first place. Look at the churches who have totally lost, they're off the rails, they're gone. They're not preaching the truth of Scripture anymore. It's because they didn't stick to Scripture, they went off on their own and now they're gone. You can think of people who get hurt by church situations that they find themselves in. You can think of the sad state of many marriages who didn't center Christ, didn't do it the way God prescribed, and now they're in trouble. And you can think of all the many people who compromise their morality, don't do what's right when they know they should. When the rubber hits the road, they don't do what's right. And all the consequences that come from that. So God warns Israel, and God warns us, hoping that we'll turn. He, he, God loves Israel. They're his people. He wants them to see the error of their ways and turn away from it. But in Israel's case, as is often the case with us, the warnings don't stop Israel. The warnings don't stop us. We know the consequences. We see them coming. We see the warning signs as we go further and further down that road. And then we end up doing it anyway. And that's because what the warning signs do, what what God's warning here does, is actually just prove the bottom line problem that Israel has. When Israel hears the warnings and he... And, and, they, and they don't heed them and they go on to it, it proves the, the heart issue that every human being has that Israel has right here and that is that they lack faith in God. They ignore God's warnings and they prove that their real problem is a lack of faith. Look at verse 19, the last few verses of this passage. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So we're left on a cliffhanger. You'll have to come back next week to figure out what happens with the king. But for now, let's just look at Israel's response. They hear the warnings, and basically Israel says, Okay, he's going to take everything we have and we're going to be enslaved to him. I can live with that. <laughs> That's what Israel says. They hear that and they go, I can, I can handle that. Why? Why do they say that? Why do they do that? Because at the bottom line, they have a motivation that is driving them to blow by the warning signs, that's driving them to just do it now and not wait for God and not do it his way. And that motivation is a lack of faith that God's actually going to protect them and do and, and lead them. Look at verse 20. We get some new info here. At the beginning, they just said, hey, give us a king like the other nations. Well, here they explain themselves a little bit. They're like, yeah, yeah, we hear your warnings, but, but we need a king because, verse 20, 
that our king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. Basically, Israel doesn't uh, have faith that God is going to actually protect them from their enemies. Despite God doing that in chapter 7, now Israel again is struggling to believe, struggling to trust, struggling to have faith that when their enemies attack them, when the Philistines come from the west and the Ammonites come from the east and they're trying to figure this out, they don't like waiting for God to do it for them. They would rather uh, have a human king that they can just go out in the battle. They'd rather just grab the ark and go out in the battle. They don't like having to place their faith and trust in God to do it for them, to beat their enemies for them. So they say, hey, we'll take the slavery, we'll take all the taking stuff, as long as we have a guy who can help us fight the Philistines. <laughs> they, they go from the perfect king, the almighty king, who can defeat any army with a word, to saying, well, we, we know that, but we, we don't really trust him to take care of us. We don't have enough faith that he'll do that, so we'd rather just have a human king who maybe might die, and a lot of us might die, but at least we'll have a, a king to, to help us fight battles. Hey, Samuel's dying, God, and we know that you're kind of the judge over us. You're the, you're the ultimate just judge, but we'd rather have a weak, puny human king to, to judge us. Maybe he's more approachable. Maybe he's something, but they, they just don't like having to rely and trust on God, so they want to try and do it their own way. And the reason why they do that is because they lack faith and trust in God's plan to lead them and protect them. The warnings just prove that the bottom line issue with Israel is a complete lack of faith that God will protect them. And I think that is what this passage reveals about us as well, that we often, when we reject God's plan, when we find ourselves blowing past warning signs, we find ourselves knowing this is a bad idea, knowing scripture doesn't say this, but this thing, I need to do this thing, When we do that, we follow our own plan instead of God's, it's because we lack faith that God is actually going to do it. When we reject God's plan to follow our own plan, we prove that we are lacking faith in him. Again, think about all those examples that I've been giving throughout. The church that needs a leader and looks to other places to try and find a leader instead of to what scripture says, it's because they don't actually trust that when they read scripture that God is going to provide that person, that God is going to use that person to lead them. They don't trust when they look at scripture that God's actually going to do that and work through that person. They go, ah, let's just get another guy in here. Let, let's, get a, let's get a guy like this guy over here. We'll, we'll put him in. You don't trust that God's going to do it. When churches go off the rails, when they see empty seats and dwindling offering and attendance, instead of trusting in God, sticking to his plan, doing what his word says, they go, oh, let's just change the message a little bit. We, we don't trust that God's going to do this. They, they lack faith, so they try and fix it themselves. Again, you can think about the person looking for somebody to marry. They don't trust that there is someone that God, that God is right in saying that, yeah, you should really marry a Christian, man. It's, it's in there. You should do it. They go, ah, but God, but there's this person. They're not a Christian, but it'll be fine. And when, again, the rubber hits the road and, and you need to put food on the table and somebody asks you at work to do something you know is wrong, do you trust that God's going to provide for you or do you just give in and try and provide for yourself and do what's wrong and try your own way? When we do that, it's because we lack faith that God will actually provide. So 1 Samuel 8, kind of a downer of a passage. <laughs> it is, uh, it's, it's pretty brutal. Israel immediately goes right back downhill. They, they just go for it anyway. They lack faith in God. They reject him as king. And they show us that we do the same thing. Our hearts are, are very similar. Uh, but the good news this morning is that there is hope for us. Uh, there is a great hope. There is also hope for Israel I'll give you a sneak peek into chapter 12. A couple of pages later, they figure it out. They go, oh no, what have we done? Why did we, why did we want a king? And they go to Samuel, they're like, Samuel, help us out. You're right, we sinned in, in trying to re- reject God. And God 
uh, says to Israel, hey, Israel, even though you've been faithless to me, you don't trust and believe in me, uh, I'll be faithful to you, Israel. And if you follow the law and if the king follows the law and the king acts like he's supposed to in Deuteronomy 17, I will bless uh, Israel, is what God will tell us in a couple chapters in, in chapter 12. Uh, and God does just that. So they, they, this is also a spoiler for later in Samuel, but eventually God brings in his king, the king after his own heart, King David, and he makes a covenant with David and says, hey David, you're my guy and all, your, your line is going to reign on the throne forever. From here on out, I've got my king on the throne, your line's going to reign on the throne for the rest of time and God did that. There is right now, at this moment, a king from David's line on the throne of the entire universe, Jesus Christ. Right now, he's on the throne. God worked through uh, Israel's dodging his plan, trying their own way to bring about his ultimate king that he always had planned. And he was faithful to Israel even when they're faithless. And for us, because Jesus Christ is the king of all the universe, because Jesus Christ is on the throne, because Jesus Christ is in heaven interceding on our behalf, because of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension for us, uh, we now also have hope. It's not just that Israel can have hope in their messy king situation, but we have hope every time we find ourselves lacking faith. Every time we see the warning signs, we know we shouldn't do that thing, we blow by it and do it anyway, and we lack faith. The good news for all of us this morning is that Jesus Christ is always faithful. Even when we are faithless, even when we lack the faith we need, Jesus Christ is always faithful. For anyone who puts their faith in him, their trust in him, they repent of their sins, they believe in him for salvation, uh, he will never let you go. No matter how faithless you end up being, no matter how many times you screw up, God will, uh, Jesus Christ remains faithful. He's the king who will be faithful to you. You can think again of all those situations. The church with the pastor that blows up and the whole thing falls apart. Jesus Christ is the king of that church and he can bring that church back. If they follow him, if they get back to following his word, they choose their leader based on what he says, they can get back on track. Jesus Christ, it's his church. He'll, he'll take care of it. Same thing for the church who's gone way astray. All that church has to do is go back to what Jesus says, place their faith in him, and follow him, and he will right the ship. He will do it. The Christian who's been hurt by churches that they've been in can find their way back to a church, again, that's led by the King, Jesus Christ, who will love them and take them in. There's not a marriage on earth that can't be saved by centering it on Jesus Christ, by getting back to him being the King of that marriage. There's so much hope for us, and anybody, no matter how many times you've messed up, morally compromised, you, you, you knew you shouldn't do that thing, you gave in, you didn't trust that God would provide for you, Jesus remains faithful through that whole thing and we can place our faith and trust in him. You remember the guy, the, uh, the father in Mark 9 who his, his son has a, a, is demon-possessed, he goes to Jesus, he says, Jesus, please heal my son and he says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's us, that, that's our cry. We believe, we have placed our faith in him, but we know that we struggle to believe. We struggle to actually trust that he's gonna do what he says he does, says he will do. And so we cry out, God, please help our unbelief. Please give us more faith. Help us to trust in you. Also, uh, God, there's hope for anybody in the world, hope for all of us, because God did put his king on the throne, Jesus Christ. And notice how Jesus Christ is the only king ever as far as I know, maybe as we read through Kings or something, you could tell me, but I think Jesus Christ is the only king who perfectly fulfills that Deuteronomy 17 mandate that God gave. Jesus isn't a king who takes. He's a king who gives freely and gave even his own life to save his people. He's the opposite of this king that's gonna come in Israel. 
He's a king who never takes but always gives of himself. He's also a king who not only did he keep the law perfectly on our behalf, but he actually doesn't have to write down the law in his own book. He writes down the law in our hearts. We we can actually obey the law because we have a king who obeyed on our behalf and said, hey, here's the law. I'll put it in your hearts. I'll enable you to obey me. Now we are people who follow King Jesus who has his obedience imputed to us, has his law written on our hearts that we can resist sin. We can stand up to temptation. We can follow God even in the face of hard problems, hard things. We can put our faith in him because Jesus Christ did it and he writes the law on our hearts. He's the perfect king to lead us in following God's law. So as we go out of here this morning, we we go uh, with courage and strength to go out into our lives and be faithful. And when, that, and when that problem hits us and when that thing comes, we, we go, all right, we don't want to be like Israel. We trust you, God. We ask God for faith. Help me to believe. Help me to have faith. We don't take matters into our own hands. We don't go and see what the world's doing. Let's try that. We look to scripture. We do what God says. We follow his plan. We stay faithful to him. And when we inevitably fail, and when we inevitably look just like Israel, one chapter later, making the exact same mistake, we turn and cast our faith and cling to our King, Jesus Christ, who is always faithful, who will never let us go. When we struggle to have faith, when we put our plans instead of God's plan, when we do our thing instead of God's thing, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who will always be faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage and that even though uh, this is a discouraging passage in some ways to know that we are much like Israel, that we lack faith in you. God, thank you for the hope that you offer us in Jesus Christ, that all of our sins have been washed away, not part of them, all of them, that you have redeemed us and rescued us, and that when we are faithless, you are faithful. You are faithful to us, Jesus. And so we pray now that as we uh, sing this final song and as we go out of here this morning, God, that you would help us to believe, help us to have faith, grow our faith, sanctify us, Make us look more Christ-like. Help us to rely on you and not on our own strength, not on our own plans, but to follow you, do what you say, and place our faith totally and completely in the faithful one, Jesus Christ. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.